We live in an always-on, constantly connected, on-demand society. And of course, there's some benefits to that, like having knowledge at your fingertips and greater access to what you want when you want it, like your ability to download and listen to this podcast at any time. But it seems the stronger our Wi-Fi connection, the less connected we become to ourselves, to others, and to our purpose. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, well-being leader for Deloitte US and your host for the WorkWell podcast series. And I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm pleased to be joined today by a friend and fellow podcast host, Mike Kearney. Mike is a Deloitte Risk and Financial Advisory Partner and host of the podcast series, Resilient. I ended up coming to Deloitte in 94, and I remember the first couple of years I was in our audit practice. I'm a CPA by background. So I was in our audit practice, and, and I even spent time in our national office. Um, and it wasn't until probably about seven or eight years here where I began to figure out that, you know what, there are things that I truly am aligned to from my purpose. And I didn't talk about it like, oh, this is my bigger purpose. But I just knew that it was really important for me to do things that made me feel good. Mike and I are both very big fans of our other guests today. So it goes without saying that we're both really excited to be joined by Jonathan Fields. People are like, I don't know what to say yes or no to. It's, that is a lie. The, the problem is not an inability to make decisions. The problem is we don't know ourselves well enough to understand what to say yes or no to in a way that would actually let us invest ourselves in something that matters. It's not an inability to choose. It's, it's an ignorance of who we are and what matters to us. So, Jonathan... How do you define a good life? Ah, such a great question. Um, and it's funny. So two things. One, I, I have learned that there is no really granular, universal answer that is right for everybody. But yeah. I look at it as sort of a framework. I look, if I zoom the lens out, I look at life in general as essentially having three buckets. One I call vitality. That's about optimizing your state of mind and body. The second is connection. That's about cultivating deep and meaningful relationships. And the third one is contribution. And that's about doing meaningful work in the world. It may be the work you get paid for, or it may not be. Okay. So for me, living a good life is being intentional about filling all three of those buckets on a persistent basis to keep them as topped off as they can possibly be. Because what I've learned is that if any one runs dry, um, you're busted. You know, and, and there's flow through between those three buckets. Right. If your vitality bucket runs dry, your connections are going to struggle and your ability to contribute in a meaningful way is going to struggle. So it kind of like, you know, they all play with each other. So that's, that's kind of the lens that I bring to it these days. Yeah, and I mean, I, you, you picked up on a, or you, you said an interesting word there, intentional, mm. you know. And yeah. um, I think so much of this is about intention because as I was listening to you in three, three buckets and thinking about myself and – I mean, it, that's hard, especially if you're not. I mean, you have to be intentional about it in order to, to do that. You can't just leave it to chance. You you can't, especially these days. Um, so I, I, I think we're all walking around living largely reactive lives. Mm -hmm. um, to, to I coin a phrase, reactive life syndrome. Right, yeah. Right. So, and I think most of us are affected by it. And I'm raising my hand, too. And a huge part of the reason is because the pace of, of life has quickened dramatically. Um, technology has led us to become hyper-addicted to what other people feel is important for us to pay attention to. 
which creates less and less room in our own lives to be intentional and to choose where to focus our energy rather than just constantly react to other people's agendas, other people's, you know, like photo streams on Instagram or whatever app you may be using. And when you when you bundle sort of a really high rate of input and stimulation with effectively addiction mm-hmm. um, to technology, you know, if you if you think about it, our brain gets the same dopamine hit that it gets th- through drugs as it does when you feel a vibration right. in your pocket. Yeah. You know, and in fact, it's not even that. Simply having a phone in your pocket, research now tells us, that alone, knowing that is in your pocket, actually pretty much massively distracts you from a conversation that goes on around you. Having it on a table is yeah, even worse. I was going to say, I've read the one about having it, even if it's turned over, yeah. having it on a table, the yeah. distraction that happens Because we just, we know it's there, yeah. and our brain is constantly being like, well, it's been... It's been almost 90 seconds. Something good must be happening <laughs> on my phone right now. So it's constantly other people are feeding us, you know, like what they feel is important in their lives and what they want us to see. So we react to that and react and react and react. And very often the first action that somebody takes when they wake up is to pick up that device. And from that moment forward, the rest of the day becomes largely reactive unless you have some sort of trigger or circuit breaker mm-hmm. to stop yourself and say, okay, wait a minute. Um, does this matter to me? Like, what's genuinely important in my life? And am I using my time right now to move the needle forward in something that actually matters? And who do you know who actually does that? I don't do it. Right. I try to do it. But the reality of life is um, it moves really fast. And I think also, if I think back to the, the very first time I got a BlackBerry, Right. The first thing I was doing, the first thing I did was I I called my friend who worked at a large firm and I said, how do I turn off the little thing on the bottom that says, you know, like from like replied to on BlackBerry? Because I didn't want anyone to know that I was accessible, you know, on a real time Uh, basis. This is before it was just assumed. So it said like sent from my BlackBerry smartphone. Right. Exactly. I was like, I don't want anyone to know that now that's, you know, like long gone. Now it's just the assumption is you will be accessible within less than 60 seconds for any interaction Regardless on a 24-7 of where you basis. Are, what device you're on. Right. Yeah. So the expectation of you being reactive to somebody else's demands um, has gone up dramatically, too. Yeah. It's hard. So, so Mike, um, I know he's speaking your language here. You All right. I, I'm, I'm liking this. <laughs> yeah, you, you and I have, have had you know several conver- conversations about this, and um, you know, I, I think... Um, we we talk quite often about email. It's like, well, it's not my favorite topic, but it's definitely up there. Um, you, Jonathan, you said something I totally agree with, which is basically we're succumbing to other people's priorities. And that's what I look at email as. And I'm pretty thoughtful about what I do every day. Um, like I've got a ritual right now that I, I pretty much stick to where before I go to bed, I try to think about what are the things that I really need to get done tomorrow? How does it align with you know that which is important to me? And so um, you know, the first thing, just a couple little hacks, I actually put in my signature basically that, listen, I'm human, and I may not get back to you, and if you actually want to get something done with me, call me. Because if you call me, I will pick up, or if you text me, I will get back to you today. And, and I think that email has become a surrogate for like human conversation. And we were talking about even just kind of when you send a message, are there kind of things that people read into it when they receive it? 
And I think there absolutely is. I can tell you probably all of the biggest confrontations I've had invariably it led back to an email that I sent where I was jumping on a plane. I needed to just get it out. And somebody's like, why did you say it that way? And it's like, that was not the intent behind it. I'm constantly running experiments with that um, <laughs> to try and find it because I, I truly believe there is no, there's no email system, there's no productivity system, there's no task management system that is like right for everybody. Our brains work differently, we, you know, like our internal workflows, our cognitive processes are different. So you got to find what works for you, and that's the only way to do that is you know, like treat yourself as an N of one. Yeah. That said, I also do try and keep my inbox to one page. Um, on a pretty persistent basis, which is really hard to do. But what I found is that I'm a fan of simplicity. And just the way the state of my working environment is the state of my internal environment, what I found is the state of my inbox also pretty much represents the state of my my brain. It's so interesting that you say that because I'm... um... I'm one of those people that's always chasing the elusive and never attainable inbox zero. <laughs> and so um, I've moved off of inbox zero, but I have a hard time sleeping at night if there's like more than 10 emails in my inbox that like, even if they're opened and I know what they are and I know exactly how I'm going to deal with them, the fact that they're still sitting in my inbox, I'm like, I, yeah, really, I, I need to get those out. I need to go get those out. So that's probably some form form of my own addiction to technology, right? Yeah. But then how do you reckon? So I, I wish I could do that. Gosh, now I'm really feeling like the loser here. But um, how do you align that then with your priorities? Because one of the things I found is that I oftentimes spend so much time doing email that then I'm like, oh my gosh, that one thing or those two or three things that really matter aren't getting done you know, to the extent that they should. That's my big conundrum. I mean, I think for me, sometimes yeah. it's also an illusion, right? Because my actual inbox has 10 or less emails in it. That doesn't account for like all the folders under my inbox sure. that have <laughs> thousands and thousands of emails. And so I just have a very in- in- intricate, um, probably crazy way of like filing things that still need to get done and or responded to. They're just not actually sitting in my actual inbox. It really comes down to in no small way expectation setting. Yeah. You know, and I've and and I've done it's funny because people sometimes, you know, I have a somewhat public profile. So that means I also maintain certain social media profiles. But I'm I'm pretty inactive on them and I'm I'm pretty uninteractive on them. And people often ask me why. And part of the reason is just when I make my this is what matters list, that's not real high at the top. But the other part of the reason is I learned years ago as a blogger in sort of like the early days of me being online and in that world that if, you know, I wrote something, I put something out into the world and people started commenting on it and I felt my job was to jump in as soon as I can and, and respond to those comments, I immediately set the expectation that I would always be there to do that. And I couldn't maintain that because it doesn't scale. Once I started to get bigger and the demands got bigger, it's not scalable. And so I had to start to pull away from that, and then people got upset. Mm -hmm. So now I'm sort of more intentional, going back to that word, right, about setting expectations about my availability for interaction. And I would rather set them pretty low and actually exceed them on occasion than set them really high and constantly let people down. But also I think there's, you know... um, I guess, you know, do do you consider, and I think you answered the question, but this is probably more of a universal question. I mean, is connecting with people on social media true connection? 
or is true connection getting lost in that which is which is kind of my fear right you yeah know? so we spend so much time on that believing that it's true connection and it's great to kind of keep up with friends or family members that you haven't talked to in a long time to know when somebody's birthday is if you forgot you know all of those things are great but is it really a tool for true connection or are we or is that kind of a a mistake that we're making you know or kind of a, a, a false expectation yeah i mean um i'm fascinated by the work of uh, sherry turkle okay. on this and you know she does a lot of sort of social psychology around screens and social interaction and empathy in mm -hmm. particular and what the research is showing is that um empathy is actually kind of plummeting as screen time goes up empathy is has an inverse relationship with that Right, and so there's no, can we show causation at this point? I haven't seen research that actually shows it, but they're showing pretty robust correlation with that right now. So one of the theories is that because um, two things, one, you lose so much nuance with a screen and we try and approximate that through emojis and stuff right. like that, but we still lose so much. But also um, screen time is asynchronous. So how do you actually develop empathy and, and genuine relationships? It is in those like split second moments where you're face to face with somebody, right? And you, you you see like somebody recoil, or you see like something in their face or in their body. Somebody it's gets vulnerable, yeah. right? Yeah. And but also it happens in a moment. Like if somebody says to you, you know, like so, how'd it go last night? You know, like uh, on your date, right? You're not going to sit there and say, okay, what's the best way for me to formulate a response? Right, to you're going to have an immediate. Like, how do I construct a sentence? <laughs> you know, and which three yeah. emojis am I going to add to this? <laughs> and then like three minutes later, have it like nailed and yeah. dialed yeah. in, right? Because it destroys the conversation, but that's what that's we do. So, so uh, when conversations become asynchronous, all of a sudden we lose those moments of vulnerability and yeah. revelation that make genuine connection so worthwhile. So. I'm not a Luddite. None of us are, right? Yeah, right? Technology is here to stay. Yep. And I think it plays a really beautiful role. If you are in a region of the country or the world where you can find your people real easily, and yeah. it's a great way to at least get some of what you need. Right. It's a great way to start relationships or find groups of people who you think would be your people um, and start to build relationships. I'm a huge fan of, even when you know, we've run year-long programs with what we do, where, but what we, what we would always try and do is we would try and get people together on the ground for a two or three day retreat or program first and, or fairly early in that experience because what we found, I'm curious because you guys do so much sort of like similar, I'm really curious what your observations on this are. We found that if we get people together for a couple days first and then even for the next year, the majority of their conversation happens you know, virtually the tone and the depth of that connection is profoundly changed by simply having some face-to-face -face time yeah. first. Yeah. Well, and you know what we did at Deloitte, um, which you may have heard about this, we have almost the same thing called Deloitte University, mm -hmm. but it's all about creating that culture, which you cannot replace through video right. conference or conference calls. And you're right, because I will see people I haven't seen in years, I'll see them, and then that kind of propels that relationship again to the next yeah. time that I see and them. There was actually some really intentional design in Deloitte University, right. too, that um, I think they call it like spontaneous connection, right? right? And so it's a long building, right? We didn't build up. Um, the, the guest rooms are, are up on floors, but the learning and all of the kind of social activities, they all take place on this, you know, mm -hmm. it's a long building, right? So you kind of constantly 
have to walk back and forth. I think it's a quarter of a mile the length of the building. But it was designed that way so that everybody was kind of walking the same yeah. thoroughfare, right? And so that you would you would be running into people that you hadn't seen and you know, you didn't know were there, you hadn't seen them in weeks or months or whatever and you kinda get that's this excitement of look, I haven't seen you and you know, and like hugs and excitement and whatever. But it was but if you do you know, if you do learning on kind of multiple floors you you kind of you, you yeah right. you dilute the that some of that ability for this spontaneous connection. I always loved that co- that 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 language spontaneous connection. I'm like that that's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> you get a yeah. workout because it's so damn long <laughs> that you have to walk like a quarter mile to go yeah, anywhere. <laughs> exactly. But that makes so much sense also, and I think um, you know it sounds like you guys really paid attention to sort of social design uh, yeah. rather than let's just throw people together in, in a place yeah. and see what happens. Yeah. Like. No, let's actually construct something and engineer interaction, engineer the physical structure right. even, so that we make it as easy as possible yeah. You know, yeah. for people to form those connections. And, and I know for me as, you know, as, as a, a managing director, like whenever I go to Deloitte University, it's, you, and I've been there hundreds of times, but it's, you, I always, walking through the door, right, I feel so proud because it's, it's it, like a living, breathing example of what is so amazing about our culture and mm. the people. Um, so how did you go from law to inspiring millions of people to live, you know, their best lives? Well, there are a couple of steps in the middle. Um, and law, law was really the aberration for me, to be honest. Um, I was the lemonade stand kid, you know, I was the entrepreneur from the youngest times. And I was also deeply fascinated, weirdly, by sort of the mind-body connection and wellness and how we how we live our best lives. Um, Yet you chose to go into law. Yeah, um, and that's a whole different story. Uh, nobody who knew me at that point could understand that, like, you're doing what? Yeah. Um, I went to law school, I, um, and, and like, I had my first business in college, and I built a small business, and I sold it, and I traveled, and then I went to law school. And I came out, and I was very fortunate, I did very well, so I had a lot of opportunity, so I spent my time in the law. But it became really clear to me that, um, it wasn't right for me. I, I literally ended up in the hospital after having a huge abscess in the middle of my body and, and perforating an intestine. It was a wake-up call. Yeah. And I don't knock law in any way, shape, or form. It wasn't my path. Right. But that really had me reconsidering what do I want to do. And that sent me back into the world of entrepreneurship and wellness. And my first move was actually making $12 an hour as a personal trainer, which was probably a bigger hit to my ego than to my <laughs> bank account. At that point, I was working for you know like one of the biggest firms in Midtown New York, power yeah. job, great salary, um, but it was killing me inside. So I wanted to go into an industry and learn it from the ground up, which I did. I then opened my own facility, grew that for a couple of years, sold it to an investor group, and then um, got fascinated by the world of yoga and ended mm-hmm. up actually opening a yoga center in Manhattan. Signed a six-year lease for a floor in the building, with um, a new home, a three-month-old baby, married the day before 9-11. Wow. Um, yeah. That was quite an experience, you know? And, of course, my first thing as a longtime New Yorker is, who did I know? Because we all lost people that right. day. And then our second thing mm-hmm. <laughs> was, um, am I really going to do this? You know, am I really going to move ahead with this? Uh and a series of things sort of made me realize I needed to do it. Thankfully, we had to change a lot of plans, but we moved forward with it. We opened about eight weeks later, and there was never a bigger need for health and healing right. and community in New York than there was then. So we flourished. And if, it's, to this day, it feels weird to know that our company in some way benefited 
by what was happening, but at the same time, it's deeply fulfilling to know that we served a profound need at the point of greatest pain. You know, we were able to do that. So the business grew nicely, and, and seven years later, I sold that company as well and started to really, I, got, I started writing, mm -hmm. and I got interested in the online world, and I got interested in other stuff. I'm uh, my, the, you know, the entrepreneurial ADD and me kicked in. And, uh, and, and I've kind of been dancing around that world. In 2012, we started out as a, as a video series, actually, and in trainings for what I would call conscious entrepreneurs and founders. And it's just kind of grown slowly every year and every year from there until, you know, now we're a media and education venture. Um, and we have a sizable global community. We have, you know, a podcast that's listened to by plenty of people. Um, and we produce all sorts of trainings. And on the side, I get to write books and speak, yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah. And and so, Mike, I mean, you you um, have, you know, a, a, a very inspiring story, too. I mean, you made some significant changes in your life, in your career. Um, you know, I think Jonathan kind of chose to leave law because he realized that wasn't his path for you. I think you realized this was still your path, but you needed to make some changes in order for it to be sustainable and to live the life that you wanted to live. I almost have a similar story because I, I went to college and I always thought I was going to be an Air Force pilot. Like back to the day, you know, you know, Top Gun, and although that was Navy, but I always thought I was going to be an Air Force pilot. Um, and when I was a sophomore, my mom died. And I think this is where maybe I got off of kind of being... Uh, driven by a purposeful life, quite frankly. Yeah. And so my mom passed away and my dad was a Irish San Francisco cop, which, you know, was not the easiest person and loved him to death, but not the easiest person to deal with. And so I remember the almost literally the day she died, I said, I've got two years to get out of here and find a good job and take care of myself. Um, and I ended up paying for a lot of my college, but I ended up coming to Deloitte in 94. And I remember the first couple of years I was in our audit practice. I'm a CPA by background. So I was in our audit practice and, and I even spent time in our national office. Um, and it wasn't until probably about seven or eight years here where I began to figure out that, you know what, there are things that I truly am aligned to from my purpose. And I didn't talk about it like, oh, this is my bigger purpose. But I just knew that it was really important for me to do things that made me feel good. And if I was going to stay at the firm, I had to find things where I felt like I was making an impact, where I was valued, I was able to use my strengths. And, you know, for whatever reason, um, over the last 25 years, I've been able to find opportunities and do stuff that's been fairly significant. That's where we then kind of went down into purpose. And I was really able to start to articulate um, what my purpose was. And I actually now, going back to just routines, I look at my purpose all the time. And I really evaluate, am I doing the things um, that are aligned with it? And if I'm not, I better figure that out quickly because I'm going to be miserable. I'm not going to do a good job. Um, there's only one other thing I want to say. I'm actually kind of going through, and I told you the story earlier today, kind of a, a refresh. Um, and one of the things I believed a lot in is that, like, you know, if I live to 85, that's pretty, that's a good life, right? <laughs> that means I only got 40 years left, less than 40. Um, and I remember when I was five, like yesterday, and so you know, now I'm on the backside of my life. And so I've been very thoughtful about um, the amount of time that I have left on this earth and what does that mean? But we were in Costa Rica over the holidays and my son and I, and I'm not gonna go into all the details, but we almost drowned. Mm. And uh, it, it, for me, it was more hard because my son was involved. Um, 
but it really made me think about where I'm taking my life now. Um, and one of the things that I'm, I'm not even struggling with, grappling with, because I don't want to lose it, is when something like that happens, the weight of everything comes off. And I think in that, you know, 48 hours afterwards, I've never seen so clearly in my life, like what really doesn't matter. And quite frankly, it was most of all the crap I actually cared about or worried about. Um, The thing I'm struggling with now, though, is how do I integrate that into the way that I make decisions and the things I do now? Because I I don't want all the weight to come back, which it has slowly crept back. And so now all of the things that kind of filter my decisions that I don't want filtering my decisions is back. And so my big, um, I guess my 2018 is going to be to figure out how I can inculcate that. I want to forget the feeling on one hand, but I don't want to forget it on the other hand because I've never thought so clearly. And so I think I'm going through this like, I don't know, pivot, if you will, on what my purpose is going to be going forward, which I think is a healthy thing. But I, I and I, I'd love to know your perspective, Jonathan, because I know that you spend a lot of time um, in in this place of, of purpose and mm-hmm. talking about purpose and researching the power of purpose. But I think the beauty of purpose is that you, you don't have to decide purpose, you know, when you're 22 and, you know, it doesn't have to stay the same, you know, in, in my own story, you know, I had the wake up call a few years ago too, that like, I'm doing all these things and I'm doing really well, but I don't know why I'm doing them. So I'd love your perspective. Yeah, on this. and as you mentioned, I've been doing, sort of going deep down the purpose yeah. rabbit yeah. hole for a, a couple of years these days and doing a lot of work. And we're, we're actually, it's a lot of, um, where sort of like the, there's a lot of new stuff that, that'll be happening over the course of this year built around that. And my, my, my lens has probably evolved pretty significantly on it also. I look for what I would call your purpose through line. Um, And increasingly, I probably, and I've surprised myself by this, increasingly, I probably do believe that that stays consistent for pretty much your whole life. What changes is the expression of that through line, Mm -hmm. is the application of it, is the way that you interact with it. So if I look at... A couple years back, I had the chance to sit down with Milton Glaser, who is the most iconic living designer. Everybody knows his work, but a lot of people, unless you're in that field, wouldn't necessarily know who he is. And he said to me something which really startled me at the time, which is he said, I knew my purpose when I was five years old. He said, I didn't know I was going to be a designer or an illustrator or this or that. He said, but underneath it, I knew that I wanted to make things that moved people. And I was like, ah, and it really started me thinking uh, about the concept and this idea. I completely agree that very often we don't really get a good beat on what that thing might be until we're in our 30s or 40s. Yeah. Um, because for it to reveal itself to us, we need to live enough of life. We need to bump up against enough struggle and challenge. We need to have enough experiences that reveal pieces of it along the way. It's the classic Steve Jobs line, right? You know. You, you need enough dots to be able to look back and see, like, what is the through line that weaves through them to understand. If you don't have enough dots, it's really hard to piece them together into some sort of articulatable through line. So to me, my lens has shifted, and my sense is it's, it's less that, that that sense of purpose changes over time. It's more that we get closer and closer to discovering what the sustained through line is through experience, and it's really hard to accelerate that process. Yeah. Um, 
I also feel like, you know, I mentioned the word expression. A lot of the work that, that we're doing now is sort of on the, I look at it as a Venn diagram with three circles. You know, and, and, I, and I, in my mind, the aspiration is I want to do work in the world that lets me feel, my word for it is sparked. And my definition of that is it's the intersection between purpose, flow, and expression. Okay. Um, so, like, identifying that, that understanding of what truly matters on a sustained basis, right? Um, doing work that in some way allows me to go into a place where I become absorbed in the, the, in the expression of that purpose, of what matters. And then understanding what are the key elements of expression that allow me to go to that place where I feel fully expressed. So can I do work in the world that is on purpose, that drops me into this place of flow where I become absorbed in it and I would literally pay to do the thing? And you know, like the thought of somebody paying me to do it is <laughs> I feel like I'm almost stealing <laughs> right. And then, like, can I do it in a way where I feel fully expressed on the level of both craft and, and ability and identity? And finding that sweet spot is where a lot of my focus is. But I do see, and this has surprised me because I've always kind of resisted the idea of a consistent purpose mm -hmm. through life. But maybe the older I get um, <laughs> and maybe the deeper I go and maybe, you know, having spent years now sitting down with, with hundreds of astonishingly accomplished people who are not just accomplished, but they're on purpose. And I think that's probably something that's important to talk about also is that a lot of people confuse accomplishment with purpose. Right. Yeah. They are not the same. You can have both, but you can be incredibly accomplished right right which means all that means to me is you're really effective at going from point a to point b and checking things off a that list right but if you know purpose is the why yeah. you're going from point a yeah. to point b accomplishment is just the process of going from point a to point b and we focus so much on the accomplishment side that's why you see so many people ending up with you know a, a stellar uh resume and like the highest levels of industry and they hate the life that they've created yeah. for themselves because they're devoid of that deeper sense of purpose. Do you think that, where does self-awareness fall into um, purpose? It's everything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, there, to me, that is maybe one of the, the biggest gaps in traditional education. Right. For the life of me, I can't understand why there isn't a course in every MBA program and every undergraduate degree, which is a semester long, if not a year long, on self-inquiry and self-knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at classics, you know, if you look at the classic philosophers, if you look at, you know, like the Greeks, if you look at mm -hmm. everything was rooted in self-knowledge. You know, so how do you know? So there's there's this there's decision fatigue in the world these days. Yeah. People are like, I don't know what to say yes or no to. It's that is a lie. We all like the, the the problem is not an inability to make decisions. The problem is we don't know ourselves well enough to understand what to say yes or no to in a way that would actually let us invest ourselves in something that matters. It's not an inability to choose. It's so powerful. It's, it's an ignorance of who we are and what yeah. matters to us. And so that's where so much of our work has been also. A lot of my work over the last five years is developing process around that. What's so interesting is, so we've, had, we've run a lot of founders through programming over the years and, and we're sort of like broadening this out to just anybody in careers now but the um what we've seen is that without fail like we'll put somebody through a program 
And step one is always a deep dive into the self. And somebody will come in and say, my goal, like I'm a VC-backed founder and my goal is to 10x my company, right? We'll spend two months or so purely on self-discovery. And they'll emerge from that process and they'll come to me and they'll say, I want to sell my company, <laughs> but I don't want to 10 exit. I want to get out of it. Yeah. Or I want to rebuild the culture in a way that's nourishing to me and meaningful to me because what they realized for the first time is they had been so focused on product market fit and zero focused on product maker fit. And they're building something which is outwardly successful but is simultaneously a jail of their own creation. Um, and it is, and this, you know, this started my awareness because I'm an entrepreneur is applied to entrepreneurs. And as I broaden and look out, this has nothing to do with entrepreneurship. This is pervasive in, in the world of work yeah, everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I wake up every day and I live into my purpose every single day. And at the end of the day, I can see the fruits of that in so many different ways. The reality is, you know, a lot of people don't have that or don't feel like they have that. What do you, what's your advice, the two of you, for somebody that says, you know, I, you know I, I hear you, all of this purpose stuff is great, but I don't know how to align it with the job that I'm doing today? Yeah, and that is a huge question, yeah. especially <laughs> these days, right? Yeah. So here's, here's my lens on that, and I'm really curious to hear yeah. yours also, Mike. Uh, I think one of the biggest fictions is that if you don't feel that sense of, of fulfillment, uh, aligned purpose, in the, in the actual job or the role that you have right now, that you need to do something big and disruptive yeah. and leave and seek it outside. Right. Right. You may at some point need to make that move, but that is like, that is the, the option of, you know, that's the last right. step that you right. take. It's not the first. And most people don't realize, you know, your, your job first and foremost is if you don't feel it, is to look at your immediate surrounding, to look at the company you're working with, to look at your role, your job, and the tasks and responsibilities, and say, okay, um, let's go back to self-knowledge, right? First, I need to really understand myself, what matters to me, what fills me up, what empties me out on a various different levels, right? Then I need to look at the work that I'm doing and the culture that I'm in and the people that I'm with and the tasks and processes I do every day, and I need to identify where are the conflicts between who I am, what I need, what fills me up, what empties me out, and what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis. What most people will find when they do that is there actually is a fairly high level of alignment, yeah. but there's one or two things that are really off. So then what you get to do is say, okay, I'm not gonna blow this up, right? Because especially the further we get into life, that hurts. If yeah. you got a mortgage and a family and you want security, you don't wanna do that unless you absolutely have to. It's like, how do I redo what I'm doing right now? How do I change the way that I'm investing myself in what I'm doing now to get what I need without leaving. Um, there's some really interesting research around this called job crafting. Mm -hmm. And what they're showing is that in fact, very often you can make shifts in the way that you're doing what you're doing mm -hmm. without leaving to get that sense of purpose and fulfillment and nourishment and flow and full expression yeah. without walking out the door. But most people don't realize that so they don't even try. And they don't actually do the self-knowledge work to realize that actually there's a lot of really good stuff here, yeah. right? And there's there are a couple of things where if I do it a little bit differently, Adam Grant did really interesting uh, research, and Adam is you know, yeah. like one of the most beloved <laughs> professors at Wharton, 
And he took a group of call center employees at the university. They're calling to try and get people to donate money for scholarships. Huge burnout, huge turnover, poor performance. What he did with them was he did a really simple intervention, super simple. And he brought in a couple of kids who had graduated the school, not kids, grown-ups, right. graduated the school, who'd been you know, like first generation in college, and they went because of the scholarships that were raised by these people in the call center. In the month that followed that, the people in the call center felt like it changed the way they experienced their work, so much so that it wasn't just more fulfilling and more purposeful for them, but they actually raised something like twice as much money wow. by the effort that they put in. And, and it wasn't intentional. They didn't intentionally say, I'm going to double my effort here. Yeah. They just, having a deeper understanding of the why, yeah. like it, getting a deeper sense of purpose for the work that they were doing, um, allowed them to function completely differently and allowed them to get what they needed differently. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is step one, self-knowledge. Going, it, just, it all goes back to that. Step two is contrast that with what you're actually doing and conflict resolution. Very often, you can make small changes, and it may be actually doing more than what your job description requires, which some people are like, but I don't want to do that because I'm not getting paid for that. But if that's the thing that actually gives you that sense of I mean, everything, do it. And what the job crafting research is showing that when you do that, it actually allows you to accelerate your growth within an organization a lot faster, too, and have much more control. And, and I think, um, and, and Mike, I'd love your thoughts on this, too, but I, I think one of the great things about Deloitte um, and, and the culture and the size of the organization is um, if you don't like what you're doing, you can quite often find something else to do and still stay in the organization. But even in, in my own role, in my own story, um, I, I created the job that I was in, you know, because I realized that is what I was passionate about and there was a need for it in the organization. And so I, I often tell people, look, if there's something that you're passionate about and is going to fulfill you, start doing it. I mean, if it's good for our people and it's going to help people, it's going to make you feel good and it's going to make you feel better about yourself and the work that you're doing. So yes, it might require a little bit more of your time or energy or whatever it is that you need to give, but what you're going to get back because that's what fulfills you is going to be, it's going to be worth it times, you know, a hundred. So, and I, and I, I tell people that, and I, I often get emails that, you know, the people say, you said this, and I tried it, and, you know, you were right. And it's not mm -hmm. that I'm looking to be right, but this is a place that allows you to do that regardless of what your job is. I am so excited now to answer <laughs> this question. Because <laughs> no, we've given but, you a lot of time to think. Well, no, 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 but, but I think it's almost kind of the way that I've evolved my career. Yeah. And um, first of all, I do think the self-awareness, I love how you said that and kind of I always talk about it as my purpose. But once I really understood what my purpose was, um, it was actually fairly easy for me to craft a career at Deloitte, um, quite frankly, that I love, where I've gotten to do so many different things. I actually was meeting with a, a partner candidate um, earlier this week, and she's like, I went into your LinkedIn page. You don't look like a, a Deloitte person. You look like you work at an innovation firm. And I'm like... Yes, but these are the things that we do. So one of the things that I tell, I counsel a lot of people, and I talk about you know really getting clear on what matters to you. So like if you don't like your job, it's all in your control. 
And it's not even, I would say, yes, do more than what you're doing today. I would say that for every, any young kid that's out there working, you know, in a consulting or another organization, always do more than what you're asked to do. Because even if that's aligned with what you enjoy doing, it's your purpose, you're going to get so many more opportunities. But what I also tell people, you don't understand how many opportunities are out there. Just step back and look at all of the things that you've done over the last 15 years. Spend some time and write down what you want to do. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that there is going to be a role that either exists today or that you could create in the future that matches up with a lot of those skills. And and I'll just one personal example. a couple of years ago, the reason my, my podcast was started in the first place, or the Deloitte Resilient podcast was started, I, I had this interest in how do we elevate our brand to senior executive CEOs. And I had this feeling that we were not getting their insights in a way that we ultimately could by having real authentic conversations. So I literally, on the weekend, put together a little plan that said Deloitte should create a podcast series that goes off and interviews senior executives. And and I had no clue as to whether or not they would buy off on it, but I put together the plan, I brought it to our CEO, and he said, what the hell, let's try it out. And so I don't think people recognize all of those opportunities, whether they're existing roles or things that you could yeah. create in a firm like Deloitte, and, and it's just Deloitte. I mean, there's many other organizations that you could do the same yeah. thing with. What are some rituals or routines for you that help you stay on track because I know for me you know I, I live and work in the well-being space but that doesn't mean I always get it right so a couple things um, one I'm a meditator okay and, and I didn't come to it all that voluntarily <laughs> which is kind of funny to hear from a guy who owned a yoga studio and taught you know yoga and meditation for years and years mm-hmm. and years to thousands of people and trained hundreds of teachers um, I always I always found that space in my head through movement for most of my life, very often through rock climbing or mountain biking or things like that. I struggled mightily sitting to do it. Um, but in 2010, uh, largely in response to like a health incident that brought me to my knees and me trying to find a way to be okay, I started a mindfulness practice. And it's been pretty much daily ever since then. I came to it because I have tinnitus, which means I hear a loud, high-pitched sound in my head 24-7. And I was one of the percentage of people who don't deal with it well. And it was bringing me to a very dark place in my life. So, and there's no cure for it. You know, it just is what it is. And doctors are like, deal with it. Um, And, you know, something like 40 or 50 million people have it, but about two or three million people process it in a way where it's devastating to their lives. I was in that group. And I wasn't getting answers, so I turned to mindfulness while I was actually writing a book on uncertainty and studying how mindfulness allows us to process uncertainty. And I said, huh, maybe there's a a way to put this together. And I took that, built on my background, and created my own practice. So for me, because I have a sound that's in my head 24-7 every day of my life, I have a very... um, I have a signal Mm -hmm. that reminds me on a daily basis of the importance of practice for me. You have to have mechanisms to keep reconnecting with your reason why. And sometimes that needs to change and evolve and and keep moving out a little bit, you know, or else it drops away. I mean, it's the same thing in business, right? It's like you you work for years and years to, you know, like hit partner or MD or whatever it is, and, and then you hit it, right? And then very often there's this abyss of, huh. 
So you've got to learn how to sort of like consistently reset your why. You don't have to have the title of well-being leader to bring well-being to life at your organization. I really hope that some of what you heard today can help you make well-being a priority in your personal and professional life. Thank you to our producers and you, our listeners. You can find the Work Well podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword well-being to hear more. If you have a topic you would like to hear on the Work Well podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jennifer Fisher, or at Twitter, at JenFish23. We're always open to recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thanks and be well.